Hi there. This podcast is very special to me. I've worked with survivors of sexual abuse for so many years, and every person has their own experience. I know thousands upon thousands of survivors have never shared with anyone what they've been through, and there are many reasons for that. It is extremely difficult. But what I've found in my work over the years, both in prosecution and on the sexual abuse team at Conan Lad, is that sharing what's happened can be a very important step on your path to healing. Today, we have a very special guest, Eileen. She, along with her family, survived a violent home invasion where she and her daughter were brutally sexually assaulted. She is here to share with you what happened that night and what it's been like ever since. Her experience is her experience alone. But what she's been through has carried so much with it that so many survivors go through. No one is alone. And that is a big part of our message today. No one has to go through this alone. There is help and there are people who will support you. Before this episode starts, I'd like to offer a heads up that it could be triggering for some people as Eileen talks about the violent acts that she and her family survived. Please listen with caution and take care of yourself. It is my honor to introduce to you Eileen. Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shauna C. Terrell. In the early morning hours of October 29th, 2013, Eileen Potenza, her husband Carl, and her daughter Allison were asleep in their home in a quiet neighborhood on the north side of Indianapolis. Sometime in those hours, six armed intruders broke into their home. Eileen and Allison were sexually assaulted and Eileen was shot twice. The intruders absconded after stealing various items from the Potenza home, as well as money that Eileen was forced to withdraw from an ATM after having been shot. She's here today to tell her story. Welcome, Eileen, and thank you so much for being here today. I'm very, very happy to have you. Thank you. It's good to be here. I know that this is an incredibly difficult topic, but it's one that you've spoken on publicly more than once. Um, you've taken what happened to you, and you have more than survived. You have used this experience to spread a message of love and hope everywhere you go. And I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to join me today. I think listeners will really gain some powerful insight after hearing your story. You have such a story to tell. I want to start with learning a little bit more about you. You're a retired school teacher. I am. I taught for 35 years. Up in Lebanon? In Lebanon. Uh-huh. One year in IPS and then the rest in Lebanon. But you're retired now. I am. That's great. And then you're also a, a mom, a wife, and a grandma. I am. I have two little grandsons now. I bet that keeps you all busy. It sure does. <laughs> um, so let's talk about October of 2013. I know that you and Allie had been out shopping that evening and you came home. Um, we just walk us through what happened? Sure. Um, it was a beautiful fall night, as I recall, and we, I was just starting fall break from teaching. We had a week off. Allie was taking a little bit of a break from studying for law school. She was in her second year of law school. And we decided to go to the mall and just have some fun. And we were very happy and playing music in the car and singing and came home and we were both really tired. So we both went to bed. My husband was already in bed. Um, after you know, going to bed that night, having no idea about the events that were coming um, and that would really turn our world upside down in just a few hours. So we were sleeping and at 5.15 in the morning, we were awakened by six men surrounding our beds with guns pointed at us, screaming and demanding things. It was hard to really understand them or what they wanted. And at first, I, it was right around Halloween time, so I thought maybe it was some kind of a prank. And that's why I looked at the clock right away and saw that it was 5.15. But then for the next two hours, they terrorized us inside our house. My husband's disabled, so they kept him in bed with a blanket over his head and a gun to him for those two hours. He could hear all the chaos around, but he was powerless to help us. So I think that was a pretty terrorizing thing for him to go through. Allie, my older daughter, who was 
with me that night when we went shopping was in the next room and she quickly became part of this horror. I was shot almost immediately because I tried to run to an office phone, which probably wasn't the smartest idea, but my, I was thinking all the time, what do I need to do to help protect my family? These guys were looking for cash, drugs, guns, and they just ransacked the house, really believing that either behind pictures on the wall, in our fireplace, they just tore the house apart looking for all of this. And they didn't know you, and they weren't really targeting you or your family specifically. Wasn't it just as random as your garage door was open, right. and that's why they decided on your house? Absolutely. It was completely just by chance. That by chance, yes. I had left the garage door open from the night before. Um, I, we realized that later. And they were out in the middle of the night, and they saw an opportunity, and, and so they came in. So they essentially were just like casing your neighborhood and only picked you because they thought it was easier. Was easy? Yeah, okay. easy. I, I know that they had been to other, tried to get into other houses mm -hmm. earlier, but ours was the easiest to get into, which was definitely my mistake. Well, we live in a world where you should be able to leave your garage door open and not have to worry about something right. like that. But. Yeah. Okay, so going back to what you were saying, they had gotten into the house and were sort of looking everywhere beneath or behind pictures and fireplace and everything, just going through all of your belongings, trying to find anything of value. Yes, tearing up, you know, throwing dresser drawers out and that kind of thing, just ransacking the house and keeping us at gunpoint through the whole time. Um, and then at one point, I think they realized that there wasn't going to be much found in our house. Definitely not, no guns or drugs and very, very little cash. So I knew I was going, I could tell by the conversation I was going to be taken to an ATM. And, and I was, and that's when I was sexually assaulted and shot a second time. So then I'm driving to the ATM with this one guy and I looked over at him and he looked like a little boy. I just kind of glanced over and I thought, he just looks like a little boy with a gun who doesn't have any idea what he's doing. And so I, maybe this is the teacher in me, but I just started asking him questions about his own life and where he went to high school, which was the same place, same school that my daughters had graduated from. And then he told me that his father had been killed when he was three and that his mother abandoned him. And so we started talking about that. I said that, you know, that's a terrible way for a little boy to grow up and I'm sorry that happened to you. And he was, seemed so stunned that I had some kind of compassion at all for him. He said, look at me, which was surprising to me because all night long we were told if we looked at them that they would shoot us. So I looked at him for a minute and he just stared back at me. And then I said, why did you want me to do that? And he didn't answer, but I think he really was looking in my eyes to see if he believed me. Mm -hmm. I told him he didn't have to live this kind of a life. He could live so much better. And wouldn't he want to? And he said, yes, but I don't know what to do. So we, you know, we had quite a conversation and he, it just, I think the human side of that changed the course of the night. He became much kinder, less violent, promised that he wasn't, they weren't going to kill our family. And just a really interesting turn of events. So you think that it did possibly make a difference that you had that conversation with them when you were in the car? I think it did. I think that it's, it's hard to tell sure. what the outcome was going to be, but it seemed to. And he seemed to be kind of the leader of the group. And so I think that was, it was helpful to us. I found out while I was driving to the ATM that my daughter Allison was really being um, taunted, pulled around by her hair, and then sexually assaulted by four of the six guys that had come into our house. It was brutal, it was very demeaning, and she was only 25 years old in second year of her law school. Terrible thing for her to have to go through. And then she had to drive to the ATM and was gone for what seemed like an eternity. I started to get really worried that she wasn't coming back. But eventually she did. And we were marched upstairs to our bedroom and ordered to the ground. And the house got very, very quiet. And after a few minutes, we realized there was, we didn't think there was anybody in our house. 
At that point, Allie was the only one that could walk, and she had to go out in the dark night and try to get help from a neighbor. She was very scared that they were out there watching. Mm -hmm. She went to a couple of different places that, where they didn't answer the door, finally had to cross the street, and our neighbor across the street and her dialed 911 and um, hearing those sirens come were just, that was a beautiful sound. Mm -hmm. We knew we were gonna be okay and that help was here for us. So the whole series of events was about two hours, is that two right? Hours. I'm sure it felt like an eternity. <laughs> in some ways and in other ways it was like a flash. It's, it's hard to believe how quickly that went in, in, in some ways. I think that that's a really interesting or very important thing to note because I think a lot of people when they you know watch TV or even read the news about real cases and they think about how they would react or how it would feel in the moment you have no idea. You have absolutely no not. No this was truly probably my worst nightmare come true mm -hmm. and I also realized that I could get through it and I didn't have to be, you know, damaged for the rest of my life, that we, the whole family could move on. So that was a revelation because I don't think that I would have ever really dreamed that I could get through something like all these people in our house terrorizing us and be okay. And we really are okay. It's incredibly brave and I don't know, have the, I'm always so impressed when I talk to you or read anything about what's going on with you and you know what you're doing with things and it's just you're a very 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 strong person thank you so Allie went across the street and was able to have a neighbor answer the door and they called 911 together and then the help came and and the help just came pouring in for us from then on it was it was amazing community all the first responders, the healthcare workers, we had so much support. And I really believe that that was one of the reasons why we healed as quickly as we did and as well as we did because our house was completely destroyed, it seemed. We were out of it for six months while it was being put wow. back together. And yet, and we were damaged and we had a younger daughter who was away at college who went through a really rough time coming home and finding her house and her family in such a, a state. So she's, as, as someone who wasn't there, has suffered quite a bit as well. But we just had the kind of support that we really needed all the way through. The prosecutors, the detectives were fabulous. The prosecutors were fabulous. We had what we called the dream team, <laughs> and we really did. And I, I think that we were very lucky in that. I know that's not the experience that everyone has. And I think it's important to say that because I realize that we were kind of a high profile case in the community where it wasn't expected to happen. And not every victim gets that kind of treatment. So many people feel isolated and shameful and maybe they had they were part of the reason it happened. Mm -hmm. um, I never felt any shame or blamed myself, even though maybe I was left the door open. I never took it as something that I did wrong. And I think that's, I would wish that everyone could feel that way. Right. I think you're right. And as you and I have talked before in some of our conversations that most people who are victims of sexual assault know their perpetrator. And so there's a whole other host of emotions and just crazy things that kind of go along with that, that does make your case a little bit different. And again, just like you said, what happened to you and your family, I think is most people's worst nightmare. Your home is your haven. Right. You, you, if you can't feel safe at home, where can you feel safe? And you did absolutely nothing. You're just going to sleep and, you know, people did this to you. So I'm very happy to hear that you are, you, that you understand that it has nothing to do with you or anything that you did. Because a lot of people do have that guilt and shame and it's completely normal to feel that way. And everybody is different right. depending yeah. on 
lots of different circumstances when it comes to surviving something like this. There's no instruction manual for it. There's none of, no one else gets, not even other survivors gets to tell you right. what is right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. No. You just got to get no. through it day by day. The only thing that I do think is wrong is to blame yourself. I think that that, and to not go get help because it really is powerful to get therapy and to talk about your experience and not take any blame because sexual assault victims are not to blame in any way. And I think that's so important and one of the messages I've tried to tell people because I've had several people come to me at different times and say, I never talked about it. I was ashamed. I had been drinking too much or I was in the wrong place or maybe it was a relative and the family didn't want to believe it. There were so many different excuses. And I always try now to say, there, there is no excuse. You have to get help and there's help out there if you learn how to get it. Yeah, it's, it's so hard. Um, it is. It's just going through this. None of us can understand it until we've been through it. And everybody's, everyone's journey is different. And so you do have to do it on your own time. But I think it is so great that you are emphasizing how important it is to get that help and how much it, it does help. I think for a lot of people, you know, we're, we're moving forward, thankfully, finally, as a society in terms of talking about sexual assault and yes. getting it out there in the public, because when it does lurk in the shadows, that's where it breeds and it gets worse. And that's why people don't want to talk about it. So I think by normalizing it, even by just doing things like what you and I are doing right now, having a mm -hmm. conversation is so powerful because I think that it helps to empower other people to know that they're not alone and that um, there is help out there, just like you said, and it will, it, it will help you. And the help is going to look different depending on what you need. Because again, I can't stress this enough. It's going to look different for everyone. Yes. What the consequences on you and your body and your mind, your psyche, everything is going to be different depending on lots of different things, not just what happened, but who you are as a person, what your past experiences are. And so there are so many resources out there now for people to get help and to be able to move forward. And so I'm super appreciative that you're emphasizing that for listeners who've been through this or for they've had family members who have been through this because it does take a lot to keep on going. Let's talk a little bit about what it was like to go through the criminal prosecution, because I think that a lot of people don't understand that process either and how difficult it is. And I know that you had a very positive, or as positive as something like this can be experience with the people that you worked with. And as you said before, that's not the case for everyone. And I totally understand that. And I think that in many ways it may be more difficult for a person who does know their perpetrator or who does know or who maybe was drinking or something like that. Because unfortunately, I think that a lot of times those people are treated differently by people in the system. Whether they're trying to do that or not, I think that they are. Mm -hmm. Whereas someone who went through the horrifying events that you've gone through, pretty much everybody can say, oh gosh, that was horrifying. I, and that's everybody's nightmare. They didn't do anything to deserve it. Exactly. And then you look at other people who certainly didn't do anything to deserve it either, but it's a lot easier to cast judgment on someone who did know that person or had right. been drinking or something like that. And which makes what we do incredibly difficult because that's absolute crap mm -hmm. and nobody did anything wrong and nobody right. deserves that. I don't care what was going on beforehand. Nobody deserves it. So let's talk a little bit about what it was like to go through that prosecution process because it is also harrowing. Just, it's a lot. It was a lot. And I had had no experience with the system really, even though I, have, I do have some attorneys in our family, even had a, I had a prosecutor later on, but that was a whole new world for me, even just coming down to the, you know, going through security and all the different steps of getting into the courtroom. Those were all very daunting and intimidating. And not, not that I expected that, but it really was. But we were, we had so much guidance and phone calls, and we knew step by step what was coming, what was happening, what we were expected to do or not do. 
it, it just made the process so much easier for us. It was sort of a no brainer. And we had an advocate with us. We had, you know, we would take into private places where we could sit and talk privately, not worrying about who was in the hallway, because all of those things can be very intimidating when you're going through this. Um, the families of the uh, perpetrators were there and it was hard to be around you know, they're going through their own pain too. And I had some compassion for some of their pain sure. as well. They didn't deserve to have to go through what they were going through probably. I, so the prosecutors, the detectives, our, our main detective became a good family friend, certain of our prosecutors. They, he was right there. And it's unbelievable how comforting seeing him was for all of us. We all felt that way. Just him walking in would comfort us and kind of put us at ease because we knew he was on our team and he wanted what was best. Um, the lead detective in this case was Detective Derek Kress of the Indianapolis Metropolitan Police Department. Not only a fantastic de detective, but he's an amazing human being. He's just an all-around good guy. I've been lucky enough to work on several cases with him, try a case with him, and he's truly a police officer who gets it and who makes the process as easy as possible on the survivors. And that's not, you know, not everyone can, not everyone has that gift. It's a skill set certainly, but there's also a gift there being able to relate to the people that they're working with and have that patience and understanding and just letting you have your space to feel it out as you go. He's a wonderful guy. He sure is. We love Derek, but I will say he, he took the time to listen and he, it felt like it was very important to him. I really believe it was. And I think for a few days, he didn't get any sleep. He was passionate about helping solve this problem. And that was, I really felt that. Same with the other detectives that were involved and same with the prosecutors that we were working with. You mentioned that you had the prosecution dream team. I tend to agree with you. It was Courtney Curtis and Lindsay Gettig and Christina Gull, whom, as Eileen knows, are three of my best friends. We're actually going to Puerto Rico next year, and Eileen's been invited to go on the trip. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you did. Like, they have more experience doing, Courtney has tons of experience doing sex crimes. Lindsay has tons of jury experience doing all kinds of different crimes of violence. They've tried lots and lots of cases. And I think that you did, you, you, you got the right people on that case. And that wasn't random. That well, office knew what they were doing and they put those people on that case specifically because you want the best on something like that. They really just know what they're doing. And again, just like Derek, they know how to, they're trauma informed. So they understand how to speak with survivors of violent crimes in a way such that you don't have to feel any of those feelings where somebody's judging you or asking you questions in a way that makes you feel like, well, I didn't do anything wrong here. Mm -hmm. And not everybody knows how to do that. Again, it is a skill set and they've been trained on it. In fact, they train people on it. So it's really great to hear that. I, I just like hearing the stories of the people who are doing it right because we can all learn from those people. And I've learned from right. each one of those women and from Derek, you know, mm -hmm. I think we all need to continue to learn from each other how best to do things. So I'm glad that that part of it was maybe eased a little bit on your end. Because and I do, I'm sorry. No, I do believe that there has been a little bit of a cultural shift in believing victims. That wasn't so necessary in our case, but I do think people are starting to really talk as we are now and understanding that sexual assault is not something that you should be blamed for and you should be believed and you should be able to talk and you should have a dream team that's going to be there for you that will support you in, in, in every way. Yeah, everybody deserves a dream team. Everybody deserves that. Which is why each one of us who work within the criminal justice system, the civil justice system, we all need to do better and we can learn from the professionals that were on your case how to do it because every single survivor who goes through the system should have the same experience that you had. Yes. They should. So let's talk a little bit about what survivors who may be listening here or family members or loved ones of survivors who are trying to you know, chart their way through this. This is uncharted territory for everybody for the most part when they've first been kind of thrust in one of these situations and it's really hard to 
it's just day at a time. In terms of your experience, why did you decide to be so forthcoming about this experience and how has that aided your ability, you think, at this point in time to have a normal life and to continue your, your path of healing? Well, I, I don't know why, but that night in the hospital, I decided and I, I t told my family, we need to do something positive with this. We didn't know that we were going to survive that night for sure, but we did. And the only way to make it into something okay is to help other people or turn it into something good. Otherwise, it was just a tragedy on all kinds of, for, for a lot of different people, a lot of families. All those boys are now, the guys are in prison for life. And I really felt that it was important to make something good come. And one of the ways of doing that is just to reaching out, reaching out to other people that are going through what we had been through or, or something similar. And I think that the reason that we were fine and able to move on was the love and the support from so many places that we got, our community, our friends, people that we didn't know before this night were reaching out to us. And that's, it's hugely therapeutic and healing to have that around you, to have that kind of love around you. But, but again, I know that that's, I'm, I'm sure that that's not the case in most, mm -hmm. for most people. And so I wanted to reach out and say, I understand that, but here's what's needed for everyone, and here's what you can do to help yourself as well. And then really, I had two goals in all of this, which I think some people think I'm crazy, but, and maybe because I had taught little children for so long, I had some compassion in a funny kind of way, not excusing at all what these guys did. It was wrong, but in talking to them, their lives were so different there was just this hopelessness from the way they grew up. They didn't have the same feelings about life that my kids had. And they even expressed it that night, mm -hmm. that they, how unfair it was that Allie had all she had in our house. And we're not rich, we weren't, but they saw a different lifestyle. And, you know, I just, I feel very passionate about helping kids who feel unloved and who feel nobody really cares. That's a real tragedy too. So that's, that's another area that I've been working on. What could have prevented these boys from growing up to be such violent men? Mm -hmm. Nothing that they did was excusable, and I'm not saying that at all, but how could we maybe have prevented it? And then the other part of that, of course, is helping victims feel that they can move on in life. And, you know, I've experienced that. It didn't happen right away. But mm -hmm. in time, I see what talking, talking about it, how it can help me and how I can, I've been in um, group therapies helping some. And I see the change over time in people that they realize they're not alone. There are a lot of other people going through this. And there's no shame or there shouldn't be any shame in what they've been through. It makes a big difference. So I, it was just important to me to make something good. And I never feel like I've done enough. There's so much more to be done. But if I can touch a few lives, that's what I need to do. Well, again, I can't begin to say how <laughs> impressed I am with you because that's you're just so very strong. And you're right. There's never any excuse for perpetrating any kind of violence on another person. But uh, I will agree with you that so often in the criminal justice system is a part of the criminal justice system for a really long time. And it, it wears on you no matter what your role is in that courtroom. You walk in and you see the same thing over and over and over again. And oftentimes it is people who never had a chance from the word go. And we do need to do better because what maybe what could somebody have done for those guys when they were children or whatever. I do think it starts at home. I think yes. that it's in school. and perhaps if they, you know, kids need people. They just do. They need, they need stability. They need adults. I've done like extensive research on adverse childhood experiences and mm. that those, those experiences, and there's 10 of them, we're probably going to do a whole episode on it at some point wow. that do lead to increased risks of physical and emotional issues and also criminality. And I can tell you that almost every single case I've ever seen where you have a violent offender they didn't have anyone 
growing up. And again, it never, ever excuses anything, but I think it's so incredibly gracious of you to think, even think about that after what you've been through, to have some compassion in your heart for that. Do you ever encounter survivors in your advocacy work who, you know, feel ashamed or negative about their inability to feel that same compassion that you feel for those guys and their families? Yes, I think. And I, I honestly think some people just don't understand how I could feel that way. I don't know why really I do, but I do. And I think the connection that I made with the one guy in the car that night was part of that. I realized that he was really still just a little boy who was so, so lost and so felt so little hope in his world that it really didn't matter what he did. And that I wasn't going to change that at this point. Mm-hmm. That comes from years before, but it that is also a real problem that we're facing. So I know people don't always feel the same way that I did, but it does it's very healing to forgive. I didn't want to be angry the mm-hmm. rest of my life. And I think part of getting past it is I don't want to be a victim. And I can, I can do things to help other people, whether it's little kids, which is one of my passions, or victims of violence and sexual assault. Those are both very, very important to me. So, right. And, and there are other people, I've met people who it took them a lot longer to move on. They were angry and mm-hmm. um, hurt and just couldn't get past it for a long time. That's another thing that I guess surprised me a little bit because I didn't have that same feeling. But again, I think part of that was we had so much love and support surrounding us. And then I, the most surprising thing, I guess, to me is how many women have come up to me and said with tears in their eyes, sometimes after I've spoken somewhere, that they've been through something maybe not similar, but they've been through a sexual assault and never talked about it. And how damaging that is. And that has just kind of floored me and also driven me. I had a a neighbor who said that she was assaulted when she was in high school. Mm -hmm. And she told her, I think it was a relative that did it. And she told her family and they just brushed it under the rug. She never talked about it again. And she was, you know, 50 years later, Mm -hmm. still damaged by what had happened. Unfortunately, that's so common. Either people, you know, just don't feel like they can tell. Again, I'm really glad because I think that this societal shift is going to help with that and encourage more people. But I can't tell you how many people that I've come in contact with who have that exact experience, especially if it's within the family that they did tell somebody and they either weren't believed or just nothing was done about it. And then it har- like it's man, it just harbors inside of them and eats them up. I think it's so wonderful that you have figured out for you what it is for you that you need to do that helps you to move forward. And just because that's what is right for Eileen doesn't mean that's right for everyone else. Absolutely. Everyone's path to healing is different. And Eileen's path isn't necessarily the same as yours or your, your sister, your mother, your neighbor, your brother, your child. Everybody has to figure it out on their own. And there is no shame in, in not being able to have that compassion. I know. I I want to make sure everybody understands that. I absolutely agree. But it's just, it's different for everyone. And And it's probably more normal to not feel that. Absolutely. And I, there isn't anything wrong with that. Again, that's, this is not something that you did or caused. So you don't have to take any blame or fault or any of those feelings shouldn't, shouldn't make you feel bad about yourself. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm glad for myself that I can feel that, but I don't know why that is, and that's just been helpful for me. I want to talk a little bit about family members and close loved ones of people who have gone through something like this, because I think you mentioned earlier your daughter Rachel had some of that, what we kind of refer to as survivor's guilt. Yes. And I think in some ways, you know, what they go through is so awful as well, because it's such a feeling of helplessness and guilt that your family experienced this entire series of events, awful, horrifying events, and you didn't. How's she doing? You said that very well. I would say survivor's guilt is a very real thing. And she was kind of a fighter to begin with. So I think had she been in the house that night, it might have been worse for all of us. But 
she still has struggles that she mm -hmm. wasn't there to help or be a part of it. I, I don't know. There's nothing that she could have done, mm -hmm. but in some ways she's had the hardest road to go through because she wasn't there. That's difficult. You know, all of us have that protectiveness of our family and to know, I think you're just going to think that, well, if I'd been there, I could have done something. Yes. And in all reality, you couldn't have. No. But no. it's, I think that it's so intellectually, sure, you know that, mm -hmm. but it's still a lot harder to come to terms with that with yourself. Absolutely. And I, at one point I said to her, Rachel, because we never really talked about it and she didn't go into the courtroom or listen to any of the hearings or testimony. I said, maybe I need to just sit down with you and tell you the whole story. And maybe that would help because I think what you imagine in your head can be very damaging. Things you can dream up because you don't know. And on the other hand, there wasn't a lot of good, <laughs> good I could tell her. It was mm -hmm. a pretty terrible thing. So to hear the story sometimes I think sounds almost worse than going through it was mm -hmm. for me. And we never really did talk about it. And so she's still left with her imagination and it's, it's horrifying to her. I can't imagine. You've talked a lot, you've mentioned a lot today about this wonderful support network that you've had and not just in terms of the criminal justice system, the prosecutor, the detective, the victim advocate, but also through your friends and family. What advice can you give to those people out here listening who have had someone they love go through this and they just, it's that feeling of helplessness. They just don't know what to do. They don't know the right thing to say. What do you think that they can do? Well, I think number one is to be there. Just being there and showing their support surrounding that person. is. There's not a lot you can say and it's not important that you do say anything. It's just being there and knowing that you're going to be there, you're going to continue to be there. That was huge for us. One thing I don't know that I mentioned, but when we first went into the hospital, I was pretty drugged up and I don't remember a lot, but Allie was not, and she was terrified and she needed to be mm -hmm. protected. Derek came in and just took over. She had a sexual assault person from Prevail in Noblesville Hamilton County, there within, it just felt like seconds, just stood there. She didn't talk. They didn't have to talk right then. She was just there. The nurses were trained specifically for this. So it made me realize how important it is at the very start of things to have that person feel safe. That was critical for Allie. That's a really good point. It, and it's a process that starts immediately. Yes. And I, it's, again, so wonderful to hear that you did have that network that was already there from mm -hmm. the second that everybody found out about it. And again, I think that you're right when you said before that that's not normal necessarily or not what a lot of people's experiences. And so I appreciate that. I know that when we have talked with people in the past and I do, I do a lot of speaking myself and outreach and it, I, I agree completely. You just be there because again, everyone's journey is different. I definitely think that you shouldn't, people shouldn't offer up those platitudes that don't help, you know, even like when you lose a family member or something and people say things and you're like, that's not helpful. Right. But just showing up and maybe it's something as simple as baking some casseroles to put in the freezer or, you know, it's whatever that person yes. needs. And I think you, it, I think you're right. Just, just showing up makes absolutely all the difference in the world. We got a lot of casseroles and a lot of food <laughs> and I cannot tell you how touching that was. It was just for somebody to take the time to make you a meal and bring it to you was huge. And I've done that for other people, but I never really realized how wonderful that felt. So it's little things that, you know, it doesn't have to be that you're going to go in and give them therapy. Right. <laughs> just be there and support them. That's lovely. I, you had said something about this earlier too. When the rest of us think about something that you've gone through, you know, we're thinking about what you went through, like the actual horrifying events and then the, you know, the mental damage or maybe physical damage, but you don't think about all the other things. You still have a life. You still have to get dinner on the table. You still have to continue to mm -hmm. maybe send your kids to school for some people, things like that. And, and then when you have people who have been assaulted by, you know, maybe someone they live with, there's just all of the, a whole other 
yes. tons of other issues, housing, safety issues, ongoing safety issues, making sure Absolutely. that they stay safe. And I think a lot of people don't even think about that. No. And for us in the system, it's sometimes easy for us to lose perspective. I think just, I think that was so poignant what you said about going through security at the courthouse. Yes. Those little things. I mean, it's all, what a daunting thing to have to walk in. It's a huge building, have yes. to walk in there, go through security. There's people everywhere. It's kind of chaotic over there. A lot of sometimes. <laughs> and then, yeah, you don't know who you're going to see in the hallway, things like that. And I know that the prosecutors and the detectives work very hard in Indianapolis to make sure that people who have gone through this are kind of secluded off in another room. So they don't have to run that risk of running into someone in the bathroom and things like that. Right. But I don't think that people think about stuff like no, that. No, I would not have uh, before this. That would never have crossed my mind. I don't think I just had never been through this whole process to even know what to expect. It's a whole, it's just, no one knows. No one, you, you know, you see things on TV, but that's not always most of the time. Not. Right what right. really happens. Yeah. So you also said, we've talked a lot about how great Derek is because he is wonderful. And you, you have mentioned this already, but I would, I just want to ask you again. So if there are officers listening, what things did the detective do that did make this easier for you? Well, I think first of all, just letting us know that they were 100% on our side and doing everything they could to catch the guys make sure that this went from the beginning to the end and it was all done right. And it, we, I just had complete trust in him and everybody that was working with him. We had DNA taken. We stayed in my mother's house for most of the five mm -hmm. months. We did have a hotel to go to too, but we were in her house and they would come to us. And it, whenever they needed something, they'd ask and they'd come at a time which was appropriate for us and we never felt invaded or we never felt like they, they were intruding on us mm -hmm. they were just there to help so i think and detectives you know i i sometimes think their job is so crazy and there's so much and so many different kinds of things going on to still be as kind and compassionate as they were the entire time was pretty remarkable uh, and i know some of them were going on very little sleep mm -hmm. so i think that just showing that you care and Derek was when I went and gave my first deposition mm -hmm. videotaped with him and I told my whole story and that was early on I don't even know what I said exactly mm -hmm. but I could see in his eyes just the caring and compassion it was I was kind of taken back by that that wasn't something I expected I thought this would be very routine and mm -hmm. move on and it was more than that. That's awesome. That kindness goes so far. Mm -hmm. And I think that officers need to remember that. Because just like you said, their jobs are incredibly difficult. They are dealing with horrible things day in and day out. And again, it is easy for that to just become your norm. And you can't let that happen. No. You got to remember that this, I understand that this is your job, but this is this person's life. Exactly. And I love hearing that he definitely did right and beyond by you and your family in terms again of the prosecution, what things, and I know that you had a great support network, but what things about the criminal justice system were difficult to navigate? Well, testifying was not easy. We were in front of these men, I think five out of the six, one mm -hmm. had not been caught yet, which was a little eerie as well. So just getting up and telling the story and, talking in front of them was daunting, but we were prepped and knew what to expect. And that helped an awful lot. I, of course, didn't listen to the others in my family talk. Mm -hmm. um, I'm glad I didn't have to do that. That would have been difficult. And I'm glad they didn't hear me as well, because we didn't really know what the others were going through that night. But that, that was a whole new process. And so I think the fact that the prosecutors were there with us, talking about what was going to happen, calling us on the phone ahead of time if anything changed. And they were powerful women. So <laughs> there was no doubt they were going to do everything they could in the right way. And they did. Testimony is something that, just like you said, you can be prepped for it, but in some ways you can never truly be prepped for it because the experience is unlike any other, I think, that you'll ever experience in your life. Not only are the defendants there in the room, the people that did this thing to you, um, you've obviously got the judge, you've got the court staff, you've got the 
police officers who work in the courtroom. And then, you know, these hearings are open to the public because the Constitution is, the Constitution mandates that. So then you, you may have a whole room full of people. And this case was a high profile media case. So I'm sure there were a lot of reporters in there and everything that you're saying is being reported out to the public for various reasons. And that's completely, it's surreal, I imagine. And some of it was very graphic. And that was hard for me to explain the details of what I went through in front of my family, my other members of my family. My sister never left the courtroom. She was there for every, and my daughter's mother-in-law, she wasn't at the time, but she is now, her mother-in-law there the entire time. But to talk in front of some of those people was very difficult. My mother was there for a while. Then we'd made a decision that it wasn't good for her to be there. She was 90 years old or close. and. Mm -hmm. That wasn't very good for her. But I had a lot of neighbors there. I had a lot of friends there at different times. Mm -hmm. And so speaking is, that's not easy to do. And Courtney and Lindsay had a way of just easing you through that without feeling uncomfortable, even when things were very uncomfortable to talk about. That's so important for prosecutors to learn from and to understand that there is a way to do it to try to make it as easy as possible on the person who's testifying. And I think that it's important that you get to decide in terms of your support network, who's in the courtroom and who's not, you know, you come to that decision with your family or however is best for you. And that's the, I think that's the best thing to do. I love that there were one or two people in the courtroom. So you have that, you can look out on the gallery and you see them and see, so you know, you've got your people there, right. but you know, maybe your mom shouldn't be there because it's going to be harder on her right. than it needs to be. And I know the prosecutors, they even, there's so much that goes into it or should go into it that they even, where they position themselves in the courtroom is trying to make it as easy as possible on you. So that you're not having to sit and look at those guys during the entire right. testimony because that just makes it harder. Right. So I appreciate that they did that. Was there anything else that stands out to you that the prosecutors did that really helped you? Well, I, I don't know. I think this is just part of the process, but at the end we were given a chance to give our a statement and for me, that was really important. And that was the first time when I really did want to look in their eyes and, and confront them because... This is at sentencing, right? The victim yes, fact. yes, okay. yes. This is at sentencing. Because in that courtroom, there were, there, were, there were six guys that were eventually prosecuted. And of those six guys, there were about 11 children that they had that were going to be left behind with no father. And that was a big deal to me. And to say we need to stop this. We, we need to stop this. And beyond that, when you go wherever you're going to be for however long you're there, think about treating people the right way. You don't have to go into this next phase of your life just fighting and being mean and hateful and hurtful. That's just not the right way to go. I don't know that that had any impact. I don't know how much they even heard of that, but it was important to me to look at them and say that. Mm -hmm. Well, again, I'm in awe of your graciousness toward them. Did you feel any certain kind of catharsis in being able to speak at sentencing? Because this is the first time, I don't know if people know that, you know, during trial, you don't get to talk about, for the most part, you don't only really talk about how you feel or what your opinions are or anything. You're there to tell the facts of what happened. Yeah. And so for the very first time, probably throughout this entire process, you finally have a point in time where you get to say, this is how I feel about things. This is what I think. And you get to direct it toward them. Was there some sort of catharsis from that or any there were, kind of Absolutely, there was. I, I guess I was hoping that they would see me as a, as a human being too and, and listen to me. I don't know. I can't say what it did for them, but it definitely did for me. And I, I had this need to look at them mm -hmm. and have them look at me our judge asked that I address her mm -hmm. and I didn't do a very good job of that because I kept looking away at them, but that was just something I needed, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I really hope that survivors and parents of child survivors hear that. I, by and large, I don't think I've ever had one person say that, that they wish they hadn't done that part. Every single person says that is one of the most important things that I did for me in terms of kind of trying to close that chapter and move on to the next part of healing. And I think for the kids, when they see 
that person go into handcuffs and maybe they're already in jail, maybe they're not, but they walk through the back door to go into custody. I think that that is so powerful for a kid who anybody really, but I think, I think about the kids a lot when Mm -hmm. um, I think about this is they get to see, Hey, I stood up for myself. And not only did I stand up for me, but I stood up for the next person that this is going to happen to. And now he can't do this to anybody else anymore because I did this. Right. Yeah. We put a stop to this cycle at least that and and in our case it was going nowhere good so it it really needed to be stopped or there were a lot more people going to be hurt yes they we won't go (coughs) super far into that but these offenders had been suspects and some of them were involved in another type of situation that was very similar to this and so again i don't in my experience uh people don't do something like this and then stop it usually escalates and continues on and gets worse and worse Eileen, is there anything else that you think that is important for listeners to know or to take away from this conversation that we've had today? Um, the only thing I guess I would say is that I really do believe that it, it's all of our responsibility as a community. There are so many people and there were so many pieces in our situation, the detectives and the prosecutors and healthcare workers, first responders that did their job and did it right. But we all need to be looking out for each other and we need to be looking out for those kids who are hurting. We need to be looking out for people who you know something's not right and they need someone to talk to. That's, that's really important. And I do believe that we're getting closer to having that kind of a society, but we've got a long way to go. And just remember that victims need to remember that they are not at fault and we believe them when, when they tell us. At least that's, that's my hope, is that they feel that they are being believed. Absolutely. No one, you're not alone. We believe you and we want to help you. Eileen, from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. Thank you for your compassion and grace and all that you do to help survivors on their path to healing. I know I keep saying it, but I'm always impressed by you. I feel very fortunate to know you. You're a strong, powerful, and compassionate woman. And if I even have a fraction of the grace that you have in my life, I'll be very happy. Uh, Thank you to our listeners. If you're tuning in here, you care. If you find value in our program, please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. As always, please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.